The Alabama Crops Report Podcast, your trusted information source for Alabama agriculture. Hey everybody, and welcome in to the Alabama Crops Report Podcast. I'm Scott Graham, an extension entomologist. And I'm Dr. Amanda Shearer, an extension plant pathologist. We're excited to be releasing regularly scheduled podcast episodes with up-to-date information about Alabama crops throughout the year. You'll be hearing from extension personnel from all over the state with the latest research and management recommendations. Well, Amanda, how's it going? I know you've been been busy. We're all getting ready to start getting trials planted and getting reporting and things finished up finally back out in the field. Yeah, I, I can't wait to actually get back out in the field. I'm kind of getting sick of my computer, to be quite honest. Yeah. But, and it's also good to come out and start recording some of these podcasts just to get into that feeling of production season. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, our guest today is Dr. Caitlin Kessheimer. Uh, Caitlin, normally on this side of the microphone, but today she's going to be doing the interview. Caitlin, how are you doing today? I'm good. A little nervous. I feel like I'm in the hot seat, so used to asking the questions, and now they'll be asked of me. But glad to be here and uh, talk about some issues we may encounter with corn this year. Yeah, just just get all your answers right, and it won't be a big deal. All right, I feel like I'm back in school again. (laughs) Did many years of that. I'm good. (laughs) Well, give us, before we get into the topic, which is going to be kind of... pre-plant corn considerations and early season insects uh, in corn. Give us a little background on what your role is with Alabama Extension. So I think I'm the the oldest of the new extension specialists here with ACES. I've been here about two years and I have statewide extension entomology responsibilities with corn, other small grains, stored grain, pastures and forages, turf, and hemp. So it's a mouthful and it also uh, makes sure I'm not bored. Absolutely. Yeah, I feel you on that one. Same thing here. And it's you try and make sure you get all those crops in when you're giving your spiels. Yep. So, all right, Caitlin, we're, we're getting to the point now where folks are starting to do some field prep. You know, we're getting uh, tillage in, in some parts of the, the state, but for the most part, we're getting ready to start doing burn downs and, and you know, and, and reduce till situations and things. So, what are some, some aspects that uh, producers need to be thinking about as we're getting ready to plant corn? Well, we know that corn is most vulnerable early in the season, those first couple weeks after planting. And so you want to get your seed off and running to the greatest start possible so you can make your yields at the end of the year um, and protect it those first four weeks of the season. Um, We do have some consistent corn pests that can affect seedling corn. We have some inconsistent ones that are really sporadic um, that may take they're more opportunistic and take um, advantage of some high-risk situations. Um, We have some soil pests, some above-ground pests, but really the goal is to make sure you protect your corn in those first four weeks or, you know, month or so, so you can make your yield at the end of the year. So you're talking a lot about, you know, seeds and seedling diseases. Um, So that's kind of getting me thinking about seed treatments. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that's particularly something, you know, just coming from someone that works in cotton and peanut a lot that we also try and keep in mind going into the season. Do you have any recommendations to producers to help kind of minimize some of the insect pests early on? Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm a fan of seed treatments. And and these days, most corn comes with seed treatments. It's it's, you'd be hard pressed to find some without Um, And they act as insurance, especially, like I said, in that first month where you're really vulnerable to below ground insect pests that can feed and then lead to, you know, corn diseases. Um, And our standard, you know, cruiser or poncho at label rates will will provide fantastic insurance as long as we don't run into 
a couple scenarios where we have a you know high infestation level um, in a high risk field, or we end up with suboptimal growing conditions. So if we have um, temperatures that dip below 55 degrees soil temps um, that go real low at your planting, or within those first couple weeks, you may end up in a situation where your seed treatment effectiveness has run out and you still have some insect pressure, and then you have you know early growth stages of corn. Um, but for the most part, you'll get great residual at label rates of most of our seed treatments. So, what are some of the uh, things we should look at in terms of what a high risk field may be as we're getting ready to plant corn? So, your your field history is really going to tell you you know what your risk level is especially early in the season. Um, most problem fields that we see with corn are rotating out of pasture or CRP, where underground insect pests have been allowed to kind of thrive for several years, um, or reduced till or no-till fields. And we've talked about this as a scientist, you know, we like no-till, there's great benefits, but as an entomologist, there's also benefits from those reduced till situations to the insects. And so they're allowed to survive. They're not kind of mechanically killed or brought up to the surface uh, to be preyed upon by birds or other predators. Um, Also high levels of residual covering the soil can kind of create a nice comfy cozy environment for the insects to overwinter. And we know when insects come out of overwintering, they want to start feeding. And so you're kind of creating a scenario where the, the environment is really beneficial for insects. Um, similarly, we have fields that are adjacent to pastures where insects will move out of the pastures into the corn. And so just kind of understanding your local landscape will help you figure out what your risk level is. So what, what would you can, uh, recommend uh, for a burn down timing as, as far as trying to eliminate the I use an entomologist buzzword, the green bridge. Ah, yes, the green bridge. So, we we I like to see 30 days, you know, four weeks, 30 days, to make sure we don't have that green bridge. Um, obviously, it's not always possible in terms of time management, chemical availability. Um, weather restrictions and so then you do have some options to go out with um, like a broadcast application of a pyrethroid which will be um, you know label rates fine take care of armyworms cutworms we had some armyworm problems last year Um, but if you if you're within that 30 day you know period you should reduce as much risk as possible so Caitlin, what are some of uh, the specific insects or their associated damage that producers really need to be concerned about prior to planting? So a lot of the the high risk scenarios that I talked about can help underground pests thrive. So we're talking about wireworms, which can feed on the seeds themselves and lead to seeding disease. In some cases, we have white grubs, especially if we're coming out of a pasture situation. And then at the surface, our most common ones are going to be cutworms or armyworms. And then every once in a blue moon, we'll see issues with um, sugarcane beetles. We saw some issues last year where a fan uh, a, a field had to be replanted because of sugarcane beetle damage. Now, I was going to ask about sugarcane beetles. That's one that when I was uh, an undergraduate student worker at Mississippi State, we had a graduate student project working with sugarcane beetles. And... We did a lot of uh, black light trapping and things, making collections, and we infested fields with PVC pipes, and we also uh, did mechanical damage. 
But I've always kind of joked, I think joked, that we called every sugarcane beetle in the state of Mississippi because we had those two years of that project. And the first year, I mean, it was easy to catch them. The second year is a little bit harder. By the third year, we couldn't hardly find one. And I don't really know how to describe, you know, why that is. But I was curious if if sugarcane beetles are much of an issue in Alabama uh, since I'm still relatively new. Yeah, no, I, and I feel for that grad student and that, you know, working on that project because we, we know they're cyclical, but we don't know the cycle, right? We don't know the timing um, or a lot of the situations that can lead to an infestation. They're, they're present in Alabama every year, but it's only when we have major infestations that it's a problem. Um, and it's interesting because I talked about, you know, white grubs and wireworms, and that's the the larval stage that's going to cause the damage. It's these adult beetles that are chewing at the base of the plant. Um, and, and we do know that fields that are that have bright lights or near gas stations that the adult beetles are attracted to and then start feeding and laying eggs. Um, we had some isolated problems in northern Alabama last year, and that was in the two seasons I've been here, that was the only time. But I do like to mention it because it's something to think about and can lead to a replant situation. Just a little behind the behind the curtains there for folks, of looking at how some of the research happens of, of what we do to make recommendations and things. You mentioned uh, fields around lights, they're attracted to that. We, we woke up for three weeks straight before sunrise, and we would go to gas stations in Starkville, Mississippi, and try to find sugarcane beetles just crawling around in you know empty gas stations and things like that. So that, that brought back some good memories Doing for the good me. Work. Yeah, yeah, trying to <laughs> trying to make it happen, trying to 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 get good answers for our producers and and figure some things out. Uh, but anyway, that's kind of an aside. Just made me think of that. Yeah, and when you said lights, it's making me think of as a grad student. I had to, I worked a lot with tomatoes, and they're on raised beds with mulches. Well, sometimes people will use reflective mulch, you know, to help manage some of those insect pets, kind of keep them from landing in the fields. And trying to rate a tomato plant in the middle of Florida in the middle of summer, you know, high intensity Do, sunlight. Doing the good work, Amanda. <laughs> so I feel you on that. It's you know, you come out kind of blinded by the light there, but it, it's. Fun times, but we do try very hard to get those that information out. So, uh, so kind of back back to sorry we we kind of took us down a little rabbit trail there, but back back to the topic at hand. You know, one of the things that's difficult as a researcher, as a, a farmer, a consultant, a scout, whatever it is, is trying to make replant uh, considerations. You know, a lot, a lot of thresholds for these early season pests are based on percent stand loss or estimated stand loss or sometimes it's when stand loss is less than or stand is less than desirable which is you know uh but what are some things you think about when recommending a a replant situation yeah that's a great question and it's it's kind of like we have to look at the entire system you know pre-plant what the stand count is and and typically i say get out there get a stand count look at what your projected yields are going to be um Typically, you know, I keep talking about this four-week window. Um, if you are within that four weeks of planting and you've lost more than half your stand, then 
it may be economical to replant. If you're past that magic four-week window and you've lost more than half, you're not going to recoup any of your costs from um, replant than you would with the original stand. Um, however, we do need to talk about you know field history. What date is it? What's the weather currently? Um, if you go into a replant situation, can you get access to short season varieties? Are they going to be within your budget for that year? What's your weed situation? What is your herbicide situation? Have you applied a post-emergent herbicide? Because um, that's going to restrict your plant back options. You may go back with corn if you can get a short season variety, sorghum, beans, but a lot of that's going to depend on, you know, what um, was applied in, you know, and according to the label. And, and we can get uh, David back on here to talk about <laughs> some of those details with chemicals. Um, but also, you know, what's the cost to replant? Um, what's it going to cost for time and labor and equipment? Um, and we have to keep in mind, if we're replanting, we have to kill the current stand. And so we don't want to have managing a situation where we're managing multiple growth stages. And so can we do that mechanically and make sure we get the growing point? Can we do it chemically and still plant back what we, we want to plant back? And so um, it, it's it's a complicated question and every scenario is going to be different. And so if, if anyone has questions, which I, I hope that no one has to deal with that this year, but give me a shout or, or call your local REA and we can kind of walk through and look at, you know, what are the economics of these decisions? Because that's what it's going to come down to. Yeah. yeah and that, one of the things we talk about, too, with, with cotton and soybeans is don't plant into the same situation. So if you've got grasshoppers decimating the field, if you are going to have to replant, do something to to get rid of the grasshoppers before we plant back. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And so, yeah, it's it's a, a lot of factors that can go into that decision. Um, but if, you, if you're if you going to get back, you know, 90% of your yield, then we can go back with corn within that first couple of weeks. But that's not always the case. So, Caitlin, this has been, uh, you know, a bunch of good information today. But another thing that I've been kind of thinking about in terms of reducing those risks is kind of thinking about variety selection. Do you have any kind of thoughts on that for producers for 2021? Absolutely. So really, when it comes to picking variety, you want to look at yield and, and disease package are going to be key. Um, what works in your area on your farm, um, you're going to know your farm, your soils, your situation better than anybody. So that'll play into varietal selections. Um, also, what traits in terms of BT do you need for above or below ground insect control? Um, and then it's really important to pay attention to refuge requirements. And those requirements are going to you know, vary based on the specific toxin that you're planting. But for corn, we're looking at 20% of your corn acreage needs to be planted into non-BT. If you're planting a single gene uh, BT, that goes up to 50%. And really making sure we plant a refuge um, is going to be the best thing we can do to preserve these traits, um, both in corn and cotton moving forward. We know some of them are starting to slip, but yeah, as, as, as good stewards, we know we want to plant that refuge. We have some options, whether it's, you know, within the um, the BT, whether it's adjacent or in a completely separate block that's within a half mile. We have refuge in a bag, so there's lots of options. Um, and, and I know that there are little data regarding some of the yields of non-BT um, varieties. So we're excited that we're starting with the on-farm variety trials this year. We're incorporating some non-BT varieties so we can get those yield data out to growers to help them make better decisions that works for, for their farm. 
Yeah, and that sounds like it'll be a really interesting field trial to get those results. So we'll probably have you back on the podcast later to discuss some of that. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, you and I can discuss yeah insect and disease ratings and those trials too. I think that'll be really helpful for our producers. You know, okay. One thing that you mentioned there uh, that I think is important is protecting these uh, these BT technologies in, in cotton and corn, and you know, pretty much 100% of the corn earworms or, or bollworms that go into cotton came out of corn. Correct. So there's yep. a, a lot of selection pressure there. So that's one of the things that you know the the cotton states entomologist across the cotton belt, we really would like to reduce the amount of VIP corn, the, the new, the, the third gene uh, in both cotton and corn. We would really like to see a little of that planted as possible. Uh, you can speak more if you'd like about, you know, the potential yield impacts of planting VIP corn, but really that puts a lot of selection pressure in VIP cotton, you know, our three gene cotton varieties where the cries are still hanging on, and in Alabama, our two-gene cottons are still performing pretty well for now, but we know that's not going to last forever. And we're trying to do what we can to, to keep VIP in the system as long as we can uh, at an effective level. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, speaking of, of corn, our, our two-gene, one-gene, non-BT, they, they perform fantastically. We have, um, we don't see any reduction in yields um, the only issue we run into is if we are late planting, and then we may see some problems from, you know, uh, corn earworm, cotton bollworm. But yeah, I want to be clear. Yeah, we do have some BTs that are slipping, but here in the cotton belt, non-BT one and two gene BT corn perform just as well. So great point. All right. Well, Caitlin, thank you very much. We enjoyed it. Hope you enjoyed being on the other side of the microphone. It was it was a new experience, but yeah, I enjoyed chatting with you guys. I'm sure we'll all get a chance to be on the hot seat too, Scott. So yep. don't yep. feel too left out. All right. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in today. I'll be looking for another episode of the Alabama Crops Report dropping next week. The Alabama Crops Report is a production of the Alabama Cooperative Extension System.